welcome. This is Mad Hat Economics, recording from Cornell University. My name is Yu Dong. I'm a graduate student majoring in applied economics. Here is Elaine. Hello, everyone. Today on our show, we invited our old friend, Professor David Just. Hello. And our new guest star, Jackina Dabnum. Hello, hi. And Jackina Dabnum is a PhD candidate at Cornell University in the field of applied economics and management. Her research focuses on behavioral economics and public policy, and she will be a professor at this fall at Amherst College. Congratulations! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So um, over the past two years, several studies have. Examine the impact of Berkeley, California's sugar sweetened beverage tax. This tax has voted into law by residents in 2014 and implemented in the spring of 2015, have shown a drop in soda consumption. So after three years, we、uh, we will talk with Jackina to see the selection effects and demand responses to the Berkeley soda tax. So,、uh, Jackina, could you introduce the soda tax? And, sure. Yeah. Sure. So I think that、uh, sugar sweetened beverage taxes, or as they're popularly referred to、mm. as as soda taxes, are on policymakers' radars because of the、um, public health concerns associated、mm-hmm. with these sugar sweetened beverage consumptions.、Mm. So as you、um, are probably all familiar with, the idea of of consuming sugar sweetened beverages has been linked pretty persistently in the public health literature、mm-hmm. to negative health outcomes like obesity,、yeah. diabetes, hypertension, cavities, and importantly, these public health outcomes tend to be concentrated in High-consuming households,、okay. and so a policymaker would be interested because of that. And I think, as economists, we can think about the rationale for intervening in that context in two ways. So the first thing is that,、um, as as you know, obesity is a huge problem in America,、yeah. um, as is as diabetes. And so every year, taxpayers are spending billions of dollars on on health expenditures related to the treatment of obesity-related conditions. And so we can think about those costs as an externality.、Yeah. And so we can think about then a sugar-sweetened beverage tax as correcting the price mechanism for for these beverages, which would then be underpriced because of the externality. As a behavioral economist, though, we might think about a different rationale, which is that <laughs> you know these people. People are doing something bad, and that they they might not choose that for themselves if they had all the information, and so we might have、mm. a paternalistic rationale for intervening in that choice context. And so I think that's another way that people come at this sugar sweetened beverage tax issue. So I think it's it's something that's really fun to study, and、yeah. it's very contentious. So people have very strong feelings about it, particularly in、uh, in Philadelphia and Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so why、uh, why Berkeley though? So that's a good good question. <laughs> so Berkeley was the first、uh, first local、uh, city in the United States to pass a sugar sweetened beverage tax. So this was the first opportunity to really look at what's going to happen when people vote these things into effect.、Mm. But they they certainly they they hadn't been the first to try. That's I right. Guess. I, mean, I know Philadelphia had tried several times、mm. and and failed. I don't I don't quite remember if they've succeeded by. Yeah、now. yeah they have succeeded <laughs> and they passed a well, their tax is fifty percent higher than the Berkeley tax.、Ooh. So yeah so in, <laughs> yeah so you can think about roughly the Berkeley tax is about twenty percent. Philadelphia's is about thirty,、oh、and Seattle's、God. is about forty percent, which is which is.、Uh, Which pretty pretty steep.、Yeah. So、uh, I think the interesting thing to remember about Berkeley is that it was voted in by a referendum. So it means that it reflects the preferences of the people that that、yeah. voted for it. So、um, mm. so I think that when we're talking about representativeness or how these might gener- the results might generalize to a larger population, that's important to keep in mind. Yeah, and I, I actually you know, thinking back about Philly, they had tried several times and. Not been able to vote one in until they they sort of changed their approach, if I remember correctly. 
they, they started attaching that soda tax to something else. Yeah, that's right. So I think the um, the Philly tax is supposed to go for educational funds. Is that right? I, mm. I, I think it's educational. I'd have to look it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's something something that has to do with funding for children, which yeah. is a, a, yeah. a easier political sell. But, you know, using that same type of sell tried to Chicago policymakers tried to do the same thing. So I know that in the case of Chicago, the funding for the tax was supposed to be tied to educational incentives. Mm. But uh, unfortunately, or I guess depending on your perspective, fortunately, <laughs> that, that tax was overturned. So it lasted from about August to December of one year. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a very, very big impact, but a, an interesting cautionary tale about what can happen when people uh, try to implement a sugar-sweetened beverage tax without building the right political consensus beforehand. Mm-hmm. But it, Berkeley had been sort of the, used as this rationale for a lot of these different areas to, to put in a, a sugar-sweetened beverage tax. I, I think Boulder and some other areas like mm-hmm. that, this is what sort of brought it onto the radar is, hey, somebody was able to do this. Yeah, that's right. So San Francisco, Oakland, yeah. Albany, all these cities in California have been able to pass these these sugar-sweetened beverage taxes afterwards. But mm-hmm. I think if we, we think about who consumes sugar-sweetened beverages, then then the sort of density of that population varies a lot between mm-hmm. someplace like Berkeley, where yeah. people tend to be more educated, they tend to be maybe a little older, a little mm-hmm. more, more white, and then someplace like like Chicago or Philly, where you would have a, a larger low-income population who mm. who may not have uh, voted for for this tax, which which uh, is regressive. So yeah. sugar-sweetened beverage taxes are regressive. So, are there any interesting findings in your research? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so I think the, the the main kind of point that I tried to make in my paper is that it's important to look at the heterogeneity of households. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I do is I break out high-consuming households from low-consuming households because, as I mentioned, these high-consuming households are the ones who are going to have these negative health outcomes yeah. um, because they're they're consuming more soda. So I find things like these high-consuming households are, are less price-sensitive, which means that all else being equal, if we implement a sugar-sweetened beverage tax, those households are going to adjust their consumption less than a low-consuming household. So that's one of the things that, that my paper suggests. Uh, the other thing is this kind of interesting reactance response, which you can think about reactance as a, a protest response. Yeah. So if you, you try to implement a policy to nudge someone in one direction, mm-hmm. they may they may be uh, directed to act and nudge you in the opposite direction. Yeah. So mm-hmm. do exactly the opposite thing that that w- that the policymaker is intending. Mm-hmm. And I do find evidence for that. So I find that once the tax has been voted into effect, there's a, an increase of about two thirds of a can of soda per household week in the amount that these high con- in that amount that all households consume. Oh. On average, is yeah. that a long-term result that they just increase their consumption over the time, or it's um, be- because of the reaction that or yeah. a fear that oh, oh my god, I'm not gonna be able to drink more. That's right. Yeah. So I think that fear could could certainly be an explanation, but I think mm-hmm. that one of the things that that doesn't seem to be an explanation is storage. So um, in the paper, I do a lot of robustness checks and look for, for other things that could be driving this. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem like uh, it's being driven by people stockpiling beverages so, in, in anticipation of the price change. So you, you yeah, so nobody is sitting there saying, oh, it's going to go up by this many cents. So I'm going to go out and fill my, you know, basement with soda. Right. Which is exactly, <laughs> that's what homo economicus would do, right? If you're, you know, <laughs> hyper rational, that's what you should do every time that there's a, a syntax that you should hoard. Yes. yes. <laughs> Do you think the income is a big factor to impact the elasticity for their yeah, uh, responses to the tax? 
Yeah, I think so. I'm not sure that any of the findings in my paper would speak to that, but I think that certainly looking at who consumes sugar-sweetened beverages, yeah. and particularly in the way that these taxes have been written. So um, at least to my knowledge, all of the local taxes do things like exclude beverages, which are 50% milk. So that means that everyone who wants to consume a frappuccino, you're going to be exempted from the sugar-sweetened beverage tax. So there's kind of these implicit income things, which say that the beverages that some people consume, like fruit juice, yeah. frappuccinos, um, you know, beverages times. that contain alcohol, yeah. all of those things have been exempted, but sugar-sweetened beverages have not been exempted. So there's kind of this implicit income effect that's being driven by, by preferences that we see along the income gradient. Now, this tax, one of the reasons this really caught people's attention, there was a really prominent paper out there that... that uh, tried to look at the impact of this tax on consumption, mm -hmm. found really pretty substantial percentage change yeah. in consumption. It's something like 20%. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's Fal the Falby paper. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, is that the one from Christine Madison, a researcher from uh, University of California, Berkeley, I think? So I think that there are, so there's a, a paper by by some people at Berkeley looking mm -hmm. at the way people responded in the pre-period. I mm -hmm. think the paper that maybe David is talking about, there's a public health paper that uh, where people yeah. did surveys. Oh, um, yeah. And so That's they right. did household level surveys and they asked people, they went door to door and, and asked people, mm -hmm. how much do you consume before the tax? Mm -hmm. And then they knocked on people's door after and said, how much do you consume? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as social scientists, we can be... Uh, immediately suspicious about experimenter demand bias. So yeah. the idea that if you, if you sit in somebody's face and you ask them a question about something that society has said they shouldn't do, then we can believe that they're going to probably underreport it. And so if we can think that that of these tax campaigns as sending a signal to people, a really strong signal that, hey, you're doing something that we don't believe in, we're do you're doing something that's bad, then then I think that probably there's some, some, some downward bias in the, or upward bias in the, the amount that people in the have adjusted. They, in the percentage change. And, and so do you think that explains the 20%? Yeah. <laughs> Don't mean to put it the, on the yeah, spot. Yeah, yeah. The 20% 20, the 20 seems seems really, really, really high. Because it, so it was 20%, and how, how big a tax was it? Yeah, so I think it's it's one cent per ounce, which is roughly yeah. about a 20% tax on consumption. Mm -hmm. So okay. so I've done a, some back of the envelope calculations about what kind of price implicit price change that is, I think, um, or sort of the the implied elasticities of demand. Yeah. And and they seem implausible. But so so I, I guess for people not not uh, very into this, so it's about a, a twenty percent tax, you say. Mm -hmm. But not all of that tax gets passed on to the consumer, right? right? Yeah. And and I, I guess John Colley actually had done some work on looking at how yeah. Uh, one, of, one of our colleagues here at Cornell done some work looking at how much of it got passed through. And there was some conflicting, there are conflicting studies on how much of that goes through. Some, right. some say it's almost all, and some say eh, maybe half. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I think Colley's explanation for it, which I think he said on average it's about 43%. Yeah. His explanation is the fact that, uh, at least in the case of Berkeley, people can go easily across the border and, and substitute. So retailers mm -hmm. can't pass the whole thing through because they won't have any sales. And so you have all these kind of fun anecdotes about people running across the border to buy sugar-sweetened beverages. Yeah. I read this article, and there's one city in Seattle where half of the city is is within the, the Seattle jurisdiction. Yeah. And then, like, literally across mm -hmm. the street, people are not subject to the sugar-sweetened beverage tax. And so there's this – they talk to this one local retailer who's just, like, watching all 
all his consumers look at the price in his store and walk across the street. And retailers are, are advertising on this, like, no, not subject to sugar-sweetened beverages, yeah. like putting up signs saying that, hey, you can shop here. So so that puts some some pressure on how much retailers can pass the tax through. Yeah, I've got to think that works if you're across the street, but yeah. maybe not uh, across town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, I think yeah. it's not only the um, retailer, but it's a lot of pressure for manufacturer as well, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, uh, one of the studies said that they're, the manufacturer is actually absorbing the, the cost for, mm-hmm. for those taxes, and they are not, because the price is, we can say the, the price is sticky, it yeah. won't like, change dramatically um, for the same product line across the nation, so mm-hmm. they, couldn't, they couldn't really respond to that, but is that gonna change because of the tax? That will the price will the price adjust in the long term? Hmm. So and the in the long term, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I think in the short term, certainly it seems to be being heavily passed through. So uh, like we mentioned, we were talking earlier that in the mm-hmm. case of Philadelphia, it seems to be about a hundred percent pass through mm-hmm. um, of a thirty percent tax. So huge. Huge, which is you know people like post receipts on Twitter talking about how much you know the Philadelphia taxes, which is really, <laughs> really interesting. Uh, in the long term, I I'm not sure sure what what manufacturers will do. That's an interesting question. Mm. Yeah, I think there's this is an industry where a lot of things are changing. So sugar sweetened beverage consumption in general yeah. is is in decline in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so so I'm not sure what will happen. Mm. That's a really good question. Typically, we find that manufacturers are much more responsive to changes in, in input prices mm-hmm. than consumers are to changes in, you know, uh, the price of consumption goods. Mm-hmm. So this is why you get like, you know, when when uh, corn syrup was suddenly slightly less expensive than, than uh, sugar, you know, cane sugar mm-hmm. in the U.S., the entire in- food industry changed from using cane sugar to using corn syrup in just about everything, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. consumers, I don't think, would have responded to those price differences virtually at all, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that's yeah. true. I do think, like, that's not because of the soda tax, but because of the awareness of the, like, health, they, um, they, the, the rising of the awareness of health, so decrease the beverage consumption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that could be. I think that also social norms play yeah. a really huge role in that as well. Yeah, and lots of like advertisement uh, campaign. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So how do you control those factors? Yeah, I think that's a, a good question. <laughs> so, um, so I'm not directly controlling for advertisement in the paper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what I do try to look at is store promotions, like is the effect I'm seeing driven by the fact that retailers are putting things on sale and, and that's um, that's causing this increase in consumption I see. Yeah. I, it doesn't seem to be the case that that's what's, that's what's going on in my data set. Unfortunately, I don't have information on advertisement behavior directly, but I think mm-hmm. that's something that, that I do want to look at. Yeah, I think it's pretty yeah, abstract and it's hard to measure. Yeah, it is. And there's, I mean, there's some some good data about, about advertisement okay. and I have a couple of ideas, but they're not in that paper. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, one of the things you seem to bring out in this paper is just that Berkeley's not sort of a normal case for, I mean, Berkeley's strange in a lot of different ways, mm-hmm. but... Um, Berkeley's not sort of a normal case for looking at soda consumption. That's right. And so I, I, I guess it's sort of a, a cautionary tale about using a, a very, very, I don't know, 
outside the norm case to try and analyze this sort of policy and, and generalize. That's right. By now, do you think we've gotten policy implementation in places where we could generalize? I don't know. Maybe you could, like, create some basket of cities, but I think things are looking more like, most of the cities are looking like Berkeley, right? Like, high-income, uh, pretty liberal, low-consuming, um, just by basis of the political process, which has implemented them. Okay. So... Uh, unfortunately, I don't. I don't know. Maybe we could generalize from from other countries. So, mm-hmm. sugar sweet and beverage taxes are are very popular in in a lot of places in the developed in the developing world. So, oh, okay. Chile, Mexico. Um, yeah. yeah. A lot of people have looked at Mexico. I know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that that yeah. I mean, it seems like that would be a little bit more representative, where uh, you, you don't have this population that doesn't drink soda at all voting and saying, let's get rid of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think one of the really important things when you talk about taxing one particular good for a health Mm -hmm. outcome is the substitutability. Mm -hmm. So there's been a really interesting paper out of the UK showing that as they've increased the prices of sugar-sweetened beverages, uh, beer sales have have gone up. So people have have substituted away from sugar-sweetened beverages to to beer. That's that's a whole other extra. Right, which is a whole... Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we can, now we've got health externalities and then also, you know, these other externalities associated with people drinking too much beer. But I think that anecdotally, people are are talking about the same thing happening in Philadelphia. So if you go into the grocery store, the price of allegedly according to the internet, of a Coors is is less, is cheaper than than now some some sugar-sweetened beverages. So people... Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't know. Maybe it was where I grew up or how I I grew up, but I, I... my visits to the UK, I could certainly see people substituting soda for beer. Right. Yeah. I have a harder time with that in the US, at least in most places. Maybe right. not all. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not beer. But I think in general the idea of, of you know, some type of substitution is, is important to think about. Yeah. So do you think the soda tax is one exploration for policymaker to decrease the children's obesity? Yeah, I mean I I think it is a tool. Maybe uh, it's not uh, the most effective tool. So I think the paper you were mentioning earlier mm-hmm. um, out of UC Berkeley by uh, Rebecca Taylor and co-authors looking at the way people have res- adjusted their consumption just around the informational campaign in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. So what they find is that the amount of decrease that people did in their consumption following the information campaign actually was a bigger impact than the tax itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that suggests, you know, especially as a behavioral economist who likes to think about, you know, these kind of these kind of different policy tools is that yeah. that a policymaker may have potentially even more powerful tools by appealing to social norms, by doing informational campaigns, and sort of letting people choose for themselves what they what they want to do now that they've learned more. Okay. In other words, persuasion can actually work. Right, exactly, and have these, <laughs> these big impacts, these big impacts, because I do think there is, like you mentioned before, a lot of ignorance around what the impact of these sugar-sweetened beverages is. So, so what were the information campaigns like in Berkeley? Because I, I know uh, New York City has tried this over and over and over again, there's a pretty, uh, I don't know how to put it, just yeah. pretty heavy-handed, I That's guess? That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Is it, was Berkeley the same sort of feel, or was it different? Yeah, so I think that the the, the campaigns in, in New York City were very graphic and one-sided. So there's things like, you know, um, pour, you're pouring out a soda can, but instead of soda coming out of it, there's globules of fat. And then you see, you know, just like parents poisoning their children by giving them sugar-sweetened beverages and just like amputees, just every kind of graphic thing you can think about. I think in the case of Berkeley, it's it was a lot more informational. In the case of people, it was within the context of policy advoca- advocation. Okay. So so there was the, the Berkeley versus Big Soda campaign. So there's a, yeah, that's the way that, uh, mm. that uh, Taylor et al. talk about it. And I, I like that a lot. Okay. 
Okay, so yeah, that, that, that would sort of make sense with my understanding. I, mean, I, I think you push out towards that graphic end and people might push back a bit yeah. or, or be repulsed by it rather than persuaded. Mm-hmm. So that, that's an interesting... It's an interesting difference. Yeah, it is. And I think there's also sort of like this team aspect of, you know, there's the Berkeley side and there's the big Soto side. So you can like pick, you can choose a side and have some belonging and like sort of get some, you know, get some, some skin in the game. I think it's pretty cool. That's right. And, so, and most people from Berkeley are fairly proud of that fact. Right, right. So. It's definitely framed as a David and Goliath <laughs> yeah. thing because there's all this money pouring in from the soda companies, but they were still able to, to overcome it. Yeah, so as a behavioral economist and as a, like a consumer, so what's your yeah, different opinion for look at the soda tax? Like, do I think we should have one or not? <laughs> <laughs> like, because I'm pretty curious about that because you are the consumers and you or do lots of research on that. So yeah. maybe you research your own behaviors. Yeah, Yeah, I think that uh, since I started studying this, I yeah. have started drinking more soda. Just, <laughs> I'm not sure why. <laughs> Just, you know, I think kind of out of spite a little yeah. bit. A little bit. So I do think that, you know, Gary Becker has this really interesting point about sugar sweetened beverage taxes, which is that, you know, for most of us who are, are not high consumers of yeah. sugar sweetened beverages, mm-hmm. these taxes are an extra, they're a negative externality on us, the tax itself. So we're being punished. We're being forced to pay more, but we're not actually over consuming in the yeah. first place. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's there's kind of these equity issues that are that are inherent in these taxes, especially when you take into effect that that they're, they've been crafted in such a way that it discriminates against the beverages that, you know, wealthy, privileged people like me drink. Yeah. So, like, I do go to Starbucks and I would order, you know, a drink that's got, you know, milk in it or alcohol in it or something like that. And, and I think that that's problematic. So in Chicago, there was a, an equity analysis done about the tax. And, and there were people who pointed out that this was, was not only regressive, but the, the mm-hmm. beverage structure was, was against minority communities because of the mm-hmm. things that were included yeah. and excluded. People who drink uh, diet soda tend to be, to be more white. Yeah. And these diet sodas tend to be excluded from, from uh, sugar-sweetened beverage taxes. Um, as do the really high-calorie-dense things that wealthier people drink. Right, exactly, right? exactly. Smoothies, shakes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can get away with the fruit juice and the uh, and the the milk added. So yeah, so I have conflicted feelings about it. I think that if I, I could write it, it would be a lot simpler, and it would it would cover uh, more more beverages. Let me put you on the spot a little bit. Soda is not the only uh, thing that people are arguing to tax or to to, to limit. Are, are there lessons from this for other things? I. I hesitate to mention, uh, you know, our gun bans and things like yeah, that, that people yeah. are now starting to talk about, uh, a little bit more prominently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think there've got to be lessons, right? So I think that one of the clear things, so, um, so David and I have a paper looking at the way people responded to New York city sort of anti-soda campaigns. And one of the really clear things that came out from that paper is that doing these really graphic appeals and trying to convince people that they're doing something bad in a really, really graphic way tends to push them against what you want them to do. So I think that's a very important lesson for people, especially if you're thinking about things like gun control. Um, I think that, you know, the idea that people may anticipate something and, and hoard and, and store a lot is something that we've seen a lot in these these um, these domains as excise taxes have been floated, especially mm-hmm. within the context of guns. So I think that's something to be concerned about. And, and I do think that there are these softer touch methods about social norms appeals and information campaigns that can be effective, but maybe without some of these other um, unintended consequences of hoarding and, and, and reactants. Mm-hmm. 
some of the message might matter too, though. I mean, I, I uh, as as we're now floating the idea of of uh, steel tariffs, which is a tax on steel. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see anybody going out to get as much steel as they can, right. or, or hoard the the you know steel based goods that they they have. I, I I wonder if if the story behind it. I mean, I, in other words, we're going to tax steel because we feel like we've been treated unfairly. Might be something that's somewhat persuasive, whereas we're going to tax uh, soda, or yeah. we're going to to restrict the ownership of guns because. You guys have been behaving badly. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that, and I think the rationale and, and the social sanction aspect of it is really key. Yeah. That doesn't seem to be persuasive. It seems to be something that, that people really do get their ire up over. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I, th- I think the, the lack of reaction to the, the steel tariffs is, is a, also a really interesting paper idea. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think that has the implication to make so many things worse. But Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, let's let's hope he's using it as a threat rather yeah. than a. <laughs> yeah. but I've heard anecdotally that people are already seeing increased prices. Uh, in the... It would, yeah. I mean, it should happen almost immediately, mm-hmm. right? As soon as we know that it's going to go into place, mm-hmm. now my steel is more valuable. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the trade war is so, yeah. <laughs> it's a popular topic now. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. Lots of uh, plausibly exogenous variation for studies. Yeah. So do. <laughs> <laughs> So do you think the increase on the gun tax will have the same impact? <laughs> or did gun regulation, you mean? Yeah. Because yeah. I, I don't think they're talking about taxing them. They're just going to make it very hard to, to get, get certain types. Yeah, so do you think mm. like just increase the tax is like a behavioral aspect? It's not to restrict the gun. Yeah, because I think it's pretty fierce. Oh, so you, you're, you're saying, could we use a tax instead? Yeah. As a solution, yeah, to decrease. <laughs> because I, <laughs> I, I would bet it depends quite a bit on what you use that tax for. I mean, if if mm-hmm. the story behind that tax is the same thing, yeah. mm-hmm. you know that, that uh, we just have too many guns and and we're worried about people abusing their their right to to bear arms, so we're going to put a tax on these types of guns. Yeah, just to increase. I, the- I think that's I think that's going to have quite. A similar impact mm-hmm. to this, this sort of soda tax, you're going to get some pushback. That doesn't mean it won't necessarily be effective. Just you're mm-hmm. going to have this pushback. Yeah, but effect. however, um, gong is different from soda. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But so I think we drink that every yeah. day. Yeah, and I think one of the things is is also the importance of short term versus long term effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think over the long term, people try to resolve this cognitive dissonance of, of protesting, and I think there's some evidence to suggest that that it may not be a, a long term reactance effect. So yeah. so maybe it's worth <laughs> the maybe it's worth that short term adjustment. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but I think uh, yeah maybe a tax where we're going to redistribute this for the preservation of hunting rights or you know something I, like that that would. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, and and in fact. Uh, licensing fees and things like that, that right. are where it is very clear this is going towards uh, preservation of of uh, of pop you know populations that are being hunted and things like that. Those actually do fairly well. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who are are into hunting, this feels like something they're doing good right. for, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, if if it's framed the right way, it might work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think yeah. Policymakers use tax like to uh, adjust people's behaviors, and countries use tax to like to manipulate like the country's 
interests, I think. Mm-hmm. So I think that just brings us to a nice ending point. Thank you, Jackina, for sharing today. Thank and you. Thank you, Professor Just. Sure. And all right, folks, here comes to the end. We're so glad you're enjoying our podcast, Mad Hat Economics. Please share or contact us. You can always find more from our website or Twitter or just simply email us, madhatecon at gmail.com. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.